The MacFab Engineering Podcast Design Contest, sponsored by Mauser Electronics, is currently going on. The topic is useless machines. We have cash prizes up to $1,000 for winners. The deadline is August 10th and is closing fast. More information can be found at macfab.com slash blog. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Zap Brannigan. And we're your hosts, Crab Foam. And Blitz. This is episode 183. So Zap was on previous episodes Incognito Mode, which was episode number 69. And Arduino, the gateway drug to hashtag Badly Life, which was episode number 109. Go back and listen to those if you want to know more about the background of Zap. So, Zap, why are you here on our podcast? Oh, and actually, thank you for coming on to our podcast. Yeah, sure, no problem. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, I know you're in, like, a hotel room right now. Yeah, I just landed in an undisclosed location. Area 51. <laughs> you're storming it. <laughs> We're looking for aliens. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm on. We just uh, announced our badge design for DEF CON 27 just yesterday. We dropped our teaser video, and... Uh, proceeded to kill my phone with notifications so that was kind of fun so what, what badge is it so this is the anonyxor badge uh previously it was known as the bender badge we had a futurama theme and basically killed off the trilogy this year and we're doing a um it's a character in a gas mask with a hoodie so basically a hacker with light up eyes and a gas mask post-apocalyptic i guess does the hacker hoodie character have a name we don't have a name for him, actually. Oh, that could be a contest we have. <laughs> best name gets a badge. Yeah, best name gets a badge. Yeah, it kind of kind of reminds me of like a like somewhat of a Fallout kind of thing going on. Yeah, it does. Um, one of the things that Hackaday wrote about us last year was they did a psychoanalysis and they said, "Hey, they just keep getting darker and darker and darker." And so last year was this Westworld theme and Bender's face is being ripped off, and this year is. Hey, it's post-apocalyptic. The whole world's gone. Like, yep, there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's this. That's this year's. Uh, one of the main things we tried to do this year is to make it as cheap or free as possible. We mostly succeeded. We only had to sell about twenty-five percent to make things happen. So we're going to be giving out seventy-five percent of our badges at DefCon. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And and that was part of the uh, the crowdfunding campaign, right? Was that like the people who purchase are in a way funding the other ones, right? Yeah. So the way we we did that was you were actually buying one badge, and then somebody else got a badge as part of that. So it was pretty expensive to to get in, but at least you reserved it. And our theme this year is you know how much can you do? Uh, so we want to find people that are hacking on things, who are doing cool projects, who are learning to solder winning contest and in some cases if you have the resources buying badge or somebody else and that's what the the crowdfunding was how's the uh, response been so far uh well considering my phone dot battery died so quickly yesterday it's been uh <laughs> off the charts we kept the design complete secret until yesterday morning it was really hard <laughs> the uh <laughs> Yeah, we uh, did some things, and Parker uh, found these for us, but the, we had some three-dimensional elements to it, some light pipes that light up and uh, glow with this really neat effect, and we're able to control that, of course, with the LEDs, and then there's some glow-in-the-dark on the front covering some capacitive touch wheels. And it has, like, an LED matrix on the front, too, right? 
Yeah, 101 LEDs in a matrix, and then plus four more for the light pipes. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I bought 80,000 LEDs this year. Nice. Uh, what are some of the other uh, design elements behind this badge? Uh, so one thing we did was we did change up our technique for actually generating the silk screen, the copper. Uh, on the final run, I did all of that in Inkscape and then used a tool called SVG to Shenzhen. And <laughs> <laughs> that sounds legit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, a lot of the add-on makers and other badge folks use it now. It, it's pretty nice because you can go in and create each you know copper layer and silkscreen layer and cutouts, and it will just spit out a KiCad uh, module or footprint for it. You just drop that in, it works. Uh, the problem is, if you do it copper layers, that'll kind of mess up things from a DRC perspective, but uh, as far as controlling solder mask and silk. So, like, one of the things you'll notice on uh, the badge's hoodie is there's this dither pattern, and that kind of gives it this somewhat sort of gray, not quite white look to it, so it sets it apart from the rest of its face. It's kind of like a comic book shading effect, old comic yeah. book style. Yeah, yeah, or, or newspapers. Um... That boardhouse uh, must absolutely love you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't complain. <laughs> really? Oh, that's yeah. great. Here, do 600 of these, and you're going to do it on your, whatever, your inkjet or whatever process they use. Have fun. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny. I sent a board over to a boardhouse just the other day that um, uh, it had some unusual aspects to it because it didn't have a, um, uh, a drill file. But it, but it does have holes in it. And the reason why I didn't have a drill file is because I actually just needed a front panel for something, and I had a DXF of everything. And so I just brought the DXF over into the board outline file and just shipped that over. And it's like, you're going to CNC this anyway from this file that should work. And there was a lot of complaining. I mean, they're, they're going to do it, but it's also like... It's, this breaks our process. Don't yeah, do this. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. But, but, but at the same time, it sort of doesn't. Uh, they just didn't. They didn't like the fact that a circle wasn't on a drill file. It was in a board outline file, which is still effectively just a CNC file. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> well, in Eagle, in Eagle, it will automatically put if a drill files over or drill hit is over a certain size. It doesn't actually put a drill hit there in the drill file. It it routes it into the board outline automatically. I don't hmm. know what the cutoff is, but so it's like that is a normal thing. Yeah, it is a normal thing. Also, the holes that were in this board, the majority of them were really big. I, I mean, as in like bigger than a quarter of an inch. So, so like they're going to see and see that anyway. Like, I just think, yeah, I think it's exactly what you're saying. Like, this does not conform to all the standards things. Just calm down. It'll be fine. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's why I was uh, Gary's why like intense silk screen and things require extra attention to detail when they're aligning um, uh, the the masks and things like that. So I, I was just curious why they I would have thought they would have complained about that. You, you probably had the drill guy work on board outlines, which he's not used to. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So what else is new with the uh, with the badge? Uh, or so different with this one? Different. So for us, it's always say, hey, what can we do that's new? We added a capacitive touch, and there's two wheels on each of the gas mask cans, and then there's another button hidden in plain sight. Uh, and we used an IQS333 from this company called Azotech, and it does all the noise rejection, and uh, you just basically just query it over I2C and say, hey, 
what's the state of this channel or these channels and it'll tell you the position on a wheel or if a button's being pressed or whatnot it's pretty neat uh, yeah that um when we started using that i actually bought the development boards for it and started playing around with it. it's super it's like if you're doing capacitive touch like just use that chip it, it just <laughs> really? works it just yeah. works it's amazing like it like self calibrates and all this stuff so like you can really? have weird oh, that's awesome. shapes and patterns and, and like it eh, it just works hmm. yeah the the wheels are actually they're not perfect circles they're kind of ovals and they're tilted out to the side and it still works it <laughs> still knows exactly where your finger is it's awesome is uh, it using uh, like a like a high frequency oscillator technology kind of thing behind it I'm a software guy. I don't know. You've got me. I never looked. I, lo- I didn't look any farther than like I actually got the dev board in for it, and I just went right into like what registers do I have to hit in I square C just to actually talk to this thing. I didn't even look at like the technology stuff because I wasn't actually making a board with it. I- input copper pad export uh, digital data, right? Yes, that's paid pretty much what I did. <laughs> I want to use it for another project, but you know, then I have to get further into like properly routing it and stuff, but. Well, that's cool. Sounds like it's not too hard. Yeah, it's not all janky like some of the analog read stuff that I've tried before. We were calibrating, and every board is slightly different than each other, so that's nice. Um, so the other big thing I do want to talk about is the FT2232. That's F- it's a dual FTDI chip, serial to UART, but uh, that's I mean that's just the surface of what it can do. So we route our UART to that to uh, channel B. But then on channel A, you can use the MPSSE uh, interface to the chip and basically bit bang I.O. You can read in uh, all sorts of data. So people have turned it into a JTAG debugger. They've turned it into an SWD programmer slash debugger. They've uh, used it to to basically pull uh, pull data off of a flash chip you can turn it into a logic analyzer. So it's just this amazing Swiss army knife of a tool. And you can buy these on eBay for like seven bucks. Uh, you have to know how to use it and you know, get your, get your hands a little bit dirty in some of the code, but it's amazing all the stuff you can do with one little device. So that's on the board. Everything's broken out and we've got some, some instructions coming to help people hack other badges with our badge. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm looking at, their uh, data sheet in the typical application section is like half a page of things that it can do. It's ridiculous. Um, I've been working on trying to get it to work with OpenOCD as an SWD because I want to dump some other badges and go play mess with their stuff. Yeah, I think one of the big elements from this year uh, was basically making are the badges and, and add-ons and stuff like useful and tools. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cause our, our mantra, and I think it speaks in the way we're, we're selling these or raising the money was uh, we want to teach you something. And so hardware hacking or just entry level hardware stuff, the, the FTDI chip is part of that. The doom SAO being an I squared C debugger is part of that. So, so not just things that flash and light up, but, can you learn something? Can it be a useful tool? As part, so so it being a useful tool is that sort of like a wink, wink, nod, nod kind of thing. <laughs> uh, have fun with it. Maybe. Oh, have fun. There we go. <laughs> no comment. Yeah, we. Uh, Hiren was actually working because he did a lot of work on the FTDI stuff. He was actually using it 
to hack an SAO that was plugged into the badge. So he's using the badge to hack an SAO plugged into the badge. It was like this weird inception thing. Hmm. Uh, so there's there's a lot of fun you can have. And yeah, I think we actually have it set up where like the NXOR badge can hack the Doom SAO badge too. Not there's not much there you can do, but yeah. Can it dump other images onto it? Um, no, but you can like write to the EEPROM and stuff. It's pretty interesting stuff you can do. Well, and writing to the EEPROM allows you to change which image or which animation it jumps to, right? Correct. Make him really bloody, make him look left, make him look right. Angry. (laughs) (laughs) Can you control that through the capacitive touch wheels? Can you like scroll through his facial expressions? You have to do it through our shell. Uh, okay. And so, if you remember last year, we did a thing called uh, L, or we called it LOL's Code. <laughs> yes, like, yes, I remember. That. Uh, <laughs> you know, writing things like uh, "I'm in your variable, up in your eye" till both same one and one hundred, right? So that was a full scripting language that ran last year's badge. So our shell is actually based off of that. We call it LOL's shell. So you have to figure out these LOL's commands to change the Doom SAO or or do something to one of the other SEOs that we have, or hack another badge. So uh, we've we've already kind of been jumping into the Doom SAO thing. Parker, you want to start uh, talking about that a little bit? Yeah, yes. so it's also out in the wild. And actually, we we shipped it out like a week before the regular badges. Um, and so far, it's been pretty good. I think we only have like one actual hardware issue that like just didn't get tested for. Um, but like the... So that's 199 of them are good. (laughs) (laughs) 199,999. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) What what, what was the issue? Uh, It's just like one of the GPIO pins is held high for some reason. And I actually looked, like, there's no 3.3 volts anywhere around that pin. So something internally got messed up on that chip is what I'm guessing. I'll get it at DEF CON, and I'm going to exchange it for... You know, I'll give them a, a working one, but um, yeah, it's just it was a weird issue. We've had a couple screen failures, um, but those were shipping issues because it's a glass screen and it goes through like a bubble mailer. So well, only one of those was an actual screen issue. Oh yeah, that's true. The other that's one correct. was a bricked was a bricked in air quotes badge, right? That's yeah. So, um, so yeah, the we were running into an issue where. Because the the code on Doom for the EEPROM only supports single reads and writes. It doesn't support continuous streams of data. Um, and it, it, it talks to address uh, 50, and which is the, the normal EEPROM address, right? Well, there was this one badge where they put their LED controller on the same I2C bus, and it's also address 50. And it just blasts data at fifty, and so what I'm I don't I haven't been able to test this yet, but what I'm thinking what is happening is when my part of the code on the EEPROM code goes to that multiple byte state, basically I just have it just go uh, forget about it, don't do anything. I need to flush that data out, and so that buffer is just getting filled up, and I'm going to bet you the wire Arduino wire library. We'll just keep on like filling up bu- that buffer, and the buffer will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it blows up and it just crashes the Doom add-on. <laughs> you don't you don't think they had protections for for overfill? I don't think so because I've looked in that code and I, I 
there's nothing really in there that sets buffer sizes or anything, so it's got to be just fills up and just runs over the uh, RAM space. So yeah. refer to episode 69 when I talked about my thoughts on Arduino and how much I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you also uh, spoke about uh, the ESP in episode 109 and how much you uh, loved that also. Yes, almost as much as SD cards. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so we we there's already been some people who've uh, hacked into the Doom SAO and loaded other things, right? Yeah, it's all, all the Easter eggs that we implemented have been found. There was not many, and since the source code, it's all open source, so you can go to GitHub and you can download everything. You can build one if you want to. Um, it's pretty easy to find the Easter eggs. I did try to hide some of the variable names in like other sections of the code. Like, I think one of them is called Inconspicuous Variable 1. <laughs> well hidden, Parker. It's well hidden. <laughs> I, when you scroll through it, it's in the section where there's a lot of long variable names, and you just, if you're not looking for something, you might miss it. Totally not an unlock int. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we actually had um, someone put in pull requests to fix bugs. <laughs> <laughs> so already. someone's already fixed bugs for me I've actually got to suck those into the repo um, probably tomorrow or, or tonight I so got you're saying they're, first. they're trying to remove features from your SAO they're adding features okay yeah okay good yeah, they're adding features so, so I saw Duke Nukem on a Twitter post was that was that an easter egg or was that someone else added that that's, a, that's an easter egg and that's if you set the health to 3D <laughs> that's great. It shows that's Duke fantastic. Nukem, uh, his face, yeah. Yeah, for 3D realms. Yes. Nice. Because I was like the only because we only have like you know two hex characters to work with with what you can write to things. So I was trying to figure out some interesting. You know, I wanted Duke to be in there. So I, Bender is also in there, and it's. Well, I won't tell what. You can look at the source code to figure that one out. I think I could probably guess what number Bender is. What number? 69, right? No. You didn't put Bender at 69? Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. Don't you have a Doom SEO to play with? He doesn't have one yet. Not yet. I he, will he have gets, one soon. You'll get one at, when he gets Def Gone. Ah. Yeah, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So what, what else is up? Um, I guess it's not Parker. It's Crab Foam. Yeah, it's crab from today. <laughs> uh, the Pinotaur, the Pinotaur <laughs> is flipping pinball machines now. Hey, congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, uh, we've only found one hardware bug, and I wired the relay up wrong. Oh, that powers the fifty volts on and off. It's like the safety relay enable. Basically, it, it allows all the power to go to the solenoids. Um, oh, that's a good thing to not wire correctly. <laughs> yeah, I, I wired it up. Normally, um, I, I wired up the relay to be normally closed, and so when you activate the relay, it goes normally. It goes open and it disconnects. <laughs> so it's the exact opposite of what we wanted to do. <laughs> Did you just do like a PCB uh, bodge to fix that? Yeah, we just wired up, you know, like an inversion gauge wire across the terminals. Oh, okay, that kind of bodge. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's great. using your Home Depot soldering iron. Exactly. Yeah, the big wedge. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you got, like, 
you got like 300 mil wide traces on both sides of the board to carry that current. So you kind of need a big wire to bridge that relay. So, so uh, we talked a bunch about um, the various ground pads and things like that and grounding schemes that you did. Uh, have you had a chance to look into that and see the impact? I mean, it's working, right? It's work. All I know is it's working at some, you know, deep remote location in in Wisconsin. That's all I know. Um, I'm actually going to get a couple boards, blank boards. I'm going to assemble them here to do some more like power testing because the main one I want to test is like if you turn on five amps of lights and cycle that on and off really fast. Does it? Does my grounding scheme actually hold up? <laughs> does the processor reset? Yeah, does the processor reset? <laughs> I'm hoping since I basically routed those all on their own thing that it it works. It should. Yeah, you would hope. You would hope. Because uh, on on Pinheck, we did it even less. Like we didn't like think about that kind of issue, and it never had a problem. <laughs> so, you know. And then uh, we started implementing on the software side, like NPF Mission Pinball Framework. That works mostly so far. I think there's a couple more bugs to work out with the USB buffer, but it seems to be working fine. Um, so that's yeah, kind of exciting. It's all kind of come together in the last, you know, two months. Yeah, when you were up here in Denver, you uh, what, you were here for like ten days. And I drank probably- beer and did that board. For like seven of those ten days, yeah, like seven of those you days. did like eight hours a day on just that board. <laughs> then, we, then we brought him out to California, and he all he did was work for us for three days. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, drink he's beer. been a bit busy. <laughs> and drink beer. <laughs> beer goes in, work comes out. Yeah, pretty much. It seems to work with crab foam. <laughs> Macrofab needs to have a little fridge, Nick. Well, Macrofab, I do, do have the, a is little the fridge, fridge still there. Yeah, it's my still little, there. My little fridge is still there. Yeah, the engineering department for the longest time had a little mini fridge that was underneath a pinball machine that had beer in it. Yeah, so that mini fridge is under my desk now. <laughs> it's even closer now. Yeah, it's even closer to me. Excuse Still me, everyone. I've got to go work. Crack. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I got I to gotta do some testing on Doom. Should he add on? Doing more. Uh, I got to pull on those those software requests and test those out they should work um because they've been tested already in the field but i want to make sure on my end and yeah hopefully there's gonna be a rev 2 pinatar probably next month or two plus some support like we gotta do like the led boards next um i already got a preliminary design for that done but yeah it's going pretty good nice because i know you were kind of scrambling last minute to kind of get that going yeah, we we managed to um, avoid disaster with that. So okay, did you did you hit the target? We hit the target, so nice. Good. Congratulations. Yeah. So, Stephen, what have you been up to? Well, I guess it's my turn. Yeah. Um, so I, you know. Hopefully this is somewhat momentous, but we finished another podcast project and I'm going to put finish in quotes, just, you know, a little bit of asterisk and (laughs) stuff, just because there, there is an article that needs to be written about the, the design and construction and implementation, but the macro amp is fully built. It is fully functional and it is like done, which that was like project two, two at, at, at macro So woo, we're finally 
chipping away at the block. So yeah, um, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but effectively, like I got the boards in, and uh, it went together really, really easily, and uh, functioned up on first startup. In fact, there really wasn't even much to do. I basically just turned it on and just started, you know, spinning vinyl on it, uh, which was pretty awesome. Uh, the one thing that sucks, and we talked about this a bit in our uh, Slack channel, um, and uh, well, we've talked about this a bunch of times in our Slack channel and on the podcast, but uh, I kind of got bit in the ass by some bad data sheets. And it's my fault, but also kind of like, why does this even exist? But uh, the three rotary switches, so let me back up a second. I implemented a, a kind of a goofy volume control scheme on the front of this amp where it has one master control volume. That's a chorus control. And then each stereo channel has its own like fine tune control. So you can like fine tune each side of the channel, uh, and then have a chorus control that controls both of them. And I did six position, two pole rotary switches for each channel and, uh, and for the volume. And I, picked some rotary switches that I've used in the past and I like them because I like the feel of them. They're robust, they're inexpensive and they're readily available on Mauser, which I kind of wanted everything to be easily available from Mauser. I've only ever used the solder lug versions of these uh, switches. Uh, this time I wanted to make everything PCB mount and they were the right height uh, such that they stood the board right off of the front panel of, of the macro ramp. So everything was nice about them. However, if you go download the data sheet for it, there's not enough information to actually build a footprint for this part. Like, it doesn't tell you what pins are what, it doesn't tell you where the pins are, and it doesn't tell you what pins connect to what. It, but it has a mechanical <laughs> drawing. And it's kind of goofy, but like, the thing about it is this switch, I don't know, they're in the couple dollar range each. I. I the next level of switch that was six position and two pole is like $35. So there's like this huge gap in between. Like, it's not like I could just go pick another one. And like I said, I've used these before. So I took a chance and I did a, actually a good bit of research on it. I scoured Google for images of like the bottom side of these, this switch. So I could kind of guesstimate on things. And I, w I was going across like users who were selling singles of these on Amazon and eBay and crap. And, uh, there's like old data sheets for this that have like suggested footprints and things, but they sort of, none, none of the, none of the data sheets agreed with each other. And in reality, if I really wanted to do this right, I should have just purchased one, had it shipped to my house and then built a footprint off the real thing. Uh, but in, I wanted to get things on order. And of course I got it wrong. The good thing is I got the like all the sizes of the holes and the radiuses of where all the pins go. Like I got everything correct. It's just the rotary switch is one position off. I had to like rotate it by 15 degrees or something like that. So the pins all fit in the holes. I just had to re-maneuver one of them to fit in the correct hole. The thing that sucks about it is just that that one click, well, that one 15-degree turn flips both of the channels on my stereo. Uh, so, like, right is left and left is right now. Oh, so no. the way I'm going to fix it is I'm just going to reroute the, the cables on the inside such that right goes to left and left goes to right and not tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not it's, putting this in production, right? 
Just oh god, this this thing would be awful for production. <laughs> I would never wish this for production on anyone. And and also like the okay, so the original intent of this was to test out the Korg new tube, which at the time I originally designed it, it was brand, brand new. new. In fact, we got engineering samples from Japan of these things, and um, the whole point was to just like make an app that uses this new new slash old technology. And the thing about it is, now that I've done it, it's kind of crappy. It's like I wouldn't I wouldn't want to use this thing in anything else. And and we've discussed it before that it's pretty microphonic um and it rings like a madman. If you tap the amp, it just has this really oh, high yeah. frequency like 6k ringing that lasts for a long time. Like it's like you can measure the time of the ringing in seconds. And the the worst part about it is I have rigidly connected rotary switches that go kachunk when you turn them right next to this thing that is incredibly microphonic so if you no. change the volume it just ping and it just hangs <laughs> on for a lot so you have to be very very ginger about turning the volume knob which i mean it, let's be honest you're going to turn the volume knob and set it but it's also super annoying so it's one of those things where i will post the design files for it but it's just like everything's functional if you built one it works it sounds great but don't build one because it's not like it's just inherently flawed due to the parts yeah the we had an idea i don't think we've ever actually said this idea on the podcast but because we were basically waiting for the macro amp to be done and then we want to take that idea and make like a cell phone carrier case that had a tube in it and was an a, a headphone preamp right an audiophile Otterbox. Yeah, basically. The mic the micro amp. Yeah, micro <laughs> right, amp. Right, yeah. And and basically once we realized that how microphonic these things were, it's like it would never work. Because you'd put it in your pocket and whenever you moved your leg, it oh. would just go crazy. If you were jogging, you would go you would go criminally insane in minutes from just <laughs> hearing that ringing. Well it, it it's fine because everything is USB C now anyways. Why do you well, if you, if you got a cork new tube, that's a little tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. May, well, okay. So Until I, I come actually out with probably a need to resurrect the uh, the Vox in the box and get that back up. And well, I mean, it's, it, we effectively finished that one too. But uh, but that's a way better. Like okay, you got you got two more uh, two modern audio solutions there you got this korg new tube that's trying to be like magical and then you have this like really well integrated text instruments um class d amplifier and frankly i'll pick the texture instruments any day <laughs> <laughs> and and the funny thing is these new tubes are like 40 bucks a piece for for something that is like at best i mean i had to do some some fancy impedance control i got 12 times gain out of this thing and that's the best it can do uh and so it's just i don't know like if this was an exercise in like uh finagling the best you can do with the worst you got kind of thing and the macro amp totally works i mean i was able to push uh 15 watts each channel uh with a function generator with uh with just regular audio i'm getting about 10 watts which is what the output transformer and the tubes are basically rated for anyway so I'll call it a success, but at the same time, it's just like, we'll use it as a learning experience. I would say probably the worst case scenario that could have happened is like if your enclosure resonated at like that seven kilohertz. Oh, 
<laughs> I, well, no, no, no. You then just use it as a really nice sine wave standard. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. It's a feature. It's a feature. Yeah, you're right. It's a feature. <laughs> don't you like? So, don't you like throw pillows and blankets into these things that they start resonating? I feel like I always saw the old amplifiers where people are doing that. You know, one one thing I haven't done yet, the, the the case I bought comes with rubber feet. Maybe I need to screw in the rubber feet so it just has just the right amount of dampening for 6K. <laughs> well, the, the other thing is uh, I haven't done it yet, and I don't even know if I'm going to, but um, I put holes in the board around the actual new tube element such that we could 3D print like a little clip that helps support it into the board. Because right now it's just it's held by its pins, uh, which all the pins of this thing exit on one side of the device. So it's kind of held in in a dive board fashion. So in other words, it's, it's, it's the worst possible configuration for it to n- not vibrate. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe one day we'll do that. But uh, it, only, it only has this issue if I mess with it. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just going to leave it on and turn it on, put it on the side of the basement and have it just be a jam box for when I'm working down here. Yeah, just leave it on all the time. That's the solution. Yeah, just cook it. <laughs> and at max volume, so you don't have to adjust the volume. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't actually have a whole lot of noise. Um, it, it did initially, and I'll just touch on this for a second. I'm, I totally made a mistake in the design, um, and that's mainly due to ignorance because I'd never actually designed a Class A amplifier before. I've always designed Class AB amplifiers, which AB are push-pull style amplifiers, so half of the amplifier works, and then it kind of like teeter-totters over to the other side of the amplifier, and that's how it pushes uh, a positive sine wave or a negative sine wave to the speakers and stuff, so they kind of share the load. What's unique about a Class AB amplifier is it inherently rejects common mode noise. Well, a Class A amplifier has virtually zero noise reduction. So you can get away with absolute murder on your uh, power supply rails on a Class AB amplifier because whatever ripple's going to be there is going to be common to both sides and it'll just get rid of it. So the first time I turned on the macro amp, I just, I get greeted with this lovely kind of sound. I'm like, oh shit, what did I do wrong? And then I realized I had like 20 volts of ripple on my high voltage rail uh and it's the high voltage rail connects directly to the output transformer which connects directly to the speaker so uh, go figure that that's my bad on that <laughs> so I, the the way i fix it is i just kludged in a an extra 840 microfarads of capacitance <laughs> and got that 20 <laughs> microfarads down to i think it's like one uh, one volt of ripple now and it's like at max volume if you stick your your ear on the speaker you'll hear some hum but or go deaf well yeah yeah well especially <laughs> with all the meatloaf that's blaring over the speakers yeah. <laughs> and if you're deaf you don't hear hum right you just feel it <laughs> there we go yeah percussive hum is what i like to call it or tactile hum so uh, one, one other thing uh, that I have luckily made some good progress on is the design, contra- design contest enclosure, which is something that Parker and I have kind of been messing around for the past oh, month and a half or so. And uh, so one of the things we wanted to do for this design contest was have an overly useless, overly complex, overly uh, well-made trophy. And so I spent last weekend 
machining a bunch of aluminum for this trophy. A lot of aluminum. <laughs> a lot of aluminum. Yeah, I bought I bought a piece a, a piece of sixty sixty one aluminum that was ten inches by thirty six inches by a quarter of an inch. So the wall thickness of this thing after I flattened it because you know anything you buy from McMaster is not going to come flat. Uh, so I had to mill all the aluminum flat. You were still looking at a wall thickness of the this enclosure of like. 0.2 inch, uh, inches, which is ridiculous. <laughs> the thing is going to be pretty hefty. Uh, but we actually have, like, it has a screen on it that's, like, milled flush into the front of the device. And uh, it it has a, uh, a through-hole uh, micro-USB connector on it. Uh, and it's all countersunk flathead screws around the edge with a nice shiny mill finish on it. It's It's going to look pretty slick when we're done with it. And this is my first foray in actually designing a GUI interface. Yeah. And so I've been taking a lot of like online Raspberry Pi Python GUI classes. How's that going? Eh, okay. It looks like garbage, <laughs> but it works ish. Well, it just has to be useless. That's it. Yes. See, now you're, now you're a full stack engineer. Almost. I got to do databases next. Okay. That's true. Yep. And then, yeah, I'll be full stack. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so so one of the things I still have left to do on the enclosure is I still have to drill and tap, excuse me, the holes for it. So my plan is actually what I want to do is um, I have all the pieces and I'm going to put a Sharpie X on the side that goes that's internal. And okay. I'm just going to send Parker like this Lego set of of aluminum pieces and you get to assemble the whole thing. And hopefully it all goes together well. So. When are you going to ship it? Because next week is DEFCON. Yeah, it's it's going to come soon. <laughs> okay. Just slap a USPS label on it and just throw it in the mail. Well, the thing was I had selected... Don't ship anything. Yeah. Well, I still have to drill and tap holes. And the thing is I selected M3 screws for everything. And unfortunately, those are just going to... I, I realize those are not going to leave enough fat on the aluminum, and I'd probably blow out some holes. So I'm, I've decided to drop it to M2.5, which means i got to go pick up some M2.5 screws and a tap. Ouch. Or probably like three taps. Three <laughs> taps, know? yes. Yeah. So we don't I gotta break get, them. Exactly. So I will get that off to you as soon as I get those drilled and tapped, which I, if, if all goes well, I'm, I'll probably actually just chuck up all the pieces in one of our mills at work and just drill the holes out that way, so they're in the exact right spot. If not, you might you might be you getting know, you a more advanced just, Lego set. You could just bring it to DefCon. Yeah, you want to you want to do it at DefCon? Yeah, just bring it assembled DefCon, and we'll just throw <laughs> the Raspberry Pi and crap into it. Yeah, that's and cool. Load some code on it. <laughs> and be like, yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm checking the bag so I can bring some heavy plates of aluminum and let the uh, TSA just look at me and be like, what? what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> just take you down to Hardware Hacking Village and have them help you finish. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, a idea. that's a, actually a really great idea. We should totally do that. See if anyone has a mill or a drill press there that's willing to help us out with it. And then what you do is you start a scavenger hunt and you ask people to bring you random things. They'll just bring it to you thinking they're part of a contest. Hey, that's a great idea. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, I, what was it? There was there was one other thing I was going to say about that. Uh, shoot, I don't remember. Oh, it's kind of sharp. We need to break all the edges. I didn't end up breaking any of the edges on it right now, and I realized that whoever gets it might really hurt themselves. Because yeah, everything is mill like sharp a, right now. Just hit it with, like, 300 grit on a random wood bull sander. On, honestly, uh, a Scotch-Brite pad 
might even be enough to just break, break the, the edge off. Or, or we could uh, we could also uh, just take a file to the edge. You you know okay so get this one of the things like I really wanted to go ridiculous with this so the think of the boxes it's like a it's like a rectangular shape right every edge every mm-hmm. side is it like a plate that is made um, except the screen is tilted back at a thirty degree angle so two of the pieces that have to come together that interface with the plate i actually ended up modeling and milling the edge to a 30 degree angle such that like it'll all fit together and meet properly instead like it's i want to avoid gaps i mean there's going to be gaps no matter what just because like nothing's going to be perfect and the material thickness is not perfect at the same time but like i went through the trouble of actually milling uh and like getting out like a ball mill and milling a 30 degree angle in the edge of a plate. I kind of had fun doing it. Yeah, you were sending me pictures over the weekend, and uh, I, I my comment was it looked like tiger aluminum, because the angle that you sent it, the pictures, it made it look like tiger stripes. Oh, yeah, well, I started off with a 14 millimeter um, flat end mill. Well, it's it's effectively a face mill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I did a 65% step over on that and just walked across the, the surface. So it has whatever 65% of 14 millimeters is that has stripes in that, in that, uh, um, width across the entire thing. So the cool thing is with the mill I used on it, I could go 6,000 millimeters a minute on that. So facing it, you can just fly through it. It didn't take too long. The part that took a long time was that I was only taking like 5,000 inch skim cuts and when you have warped aluminum, you have to do like eight passes to <laughs> to get it flat, right? <laughs> so that honestly, uh, half the day was flattening the piece of aluminum, and then the other half was making everything else. And make sure um, when you come to Defcon, actually bring your screen too, just okay. in case it's not the same tolerance as the screen I have. Yeah, like well, if it's. I, I, I I allotted a ten thousandth inch um, wiggle border around it, so it fits in there. And honestly, I say we just put like two or three dabs of super glue or something. Just yeah, I was going. There. I was actually just going to you know Loctite four nine five. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, right in yeah, there. It'll just you know. Okay, another quick gripe about um, data sheets. If you go online and try to find the Raspberry Pi seven inch monitor data sheet there's a data sheet out there with a whole bunch of dimensions on it and a whole bunch of dimensions that you just don't give a shit about Uh, and and a whole bunch of dimensions that don't help you there's a there's like and also there's like community users who like i've got the definitive drawing for this and then you look at theirs and you're like dude yours doesn't tell you half the stuff you need to know to actually make anything so one of the things that i'm a little bit upset about it's not the end of the world but like the corner radius of every of one um on all four sides it's not called out on the drawing someone said it was 6.5 millimeters so i did 6.5 millimeters it's not 6.5 millimeters (laughs) so there's a little bit extra gap on all four corners it's tiny and, like, you'd only see it if you're, like, really looking at it. But it also pisses me off because it's just like, come on. Like, these are the things you need to know in order to use this product that costs yeah. 80 bucks. Like, wh- like have the outline drawing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's, that's I, did, I did a data sheet once where the same company for the same part had three different data sheets. Nice. And they none of them agreed. 
<laughs> no date stamps either. No, no date stamps. It was like your your APA one hundred two new. Right? Oh so, yeah. So this is the new data sheet. Right? Yeah. You, no, it, you change the size of your product <laughs> in big bold text. Use this one. Yeah. <laughs> Rev, do not use draft watermark that's you know scribbled on preliminary use only. Yeah, I, I actually uh, we we had a product in uh, I re- <laughs> I remember in, at Macrofab we had a product that uh, one of the customers sent in a data sheet and literally every page had a giant watermark that was in gray that said do not use a like a huge watermark across every page and they're like yeah we're gonna use this one yeah <laughs> I just remember Stephen pulled up the data sheet and it was like Parker look at this I turn around because he was behind me, and he just turns his <laughs> monitor around and just says, do not use. I'm like, that product's going to be a lot of fun to manufacture. Oh, yeah, it was great. We had a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> Ship it. We're yeah. doing this live. Yeah. <laughs> Frankly, that's what a lot of customers feel like sometimes. Cool. So whoever gets this trophy, you know, thumbs up. Have fun with it. It's useless. Yes. Maybe they can turn it into something not useless, because it is basically... A really nice enclosure for a Raspberry Pi 3 with a touchscreen on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing I haven't done, and um, one, one thing that whoever wins this trophy might have to make it um, uh, less useless, is you might have to drill some holes in it for <laughs> to let the heat out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all aluminum. It will just conduct out. You, you, well, that's true. The entire enclosure is unpainted aluminum. So maybe it just, uh, it's a giant heat sink. We can just consider it that way. Cool. All right, let's go to the RFO time. Yeah. So speaking of Raspberry Pis, honey, I shrunk the Raspberry Pi. So this is Arducam, a company called Arducam, uh, shrunk a Raspberry Pi to a system on module style board that's got castellated edges. So think about like the ESB32 that you used before Zap. Um. But what's interesting about this is the Broadcom SOC that the Raspberry Pi 3 uses is not publicly available. And, but this is not a clone. This is not like a Raspberry Pi 3 clone either. So how did they do it? I think they're just buying a bunch of Pis and desoldering the uh, modules. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to say. That's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> is it really? Really. That is exactly what they're doing. <laughs> oh, no way. God. What's yeah. the failure rate on that? I don't know. They actually have a video of their process of taking the Raspberry Pi 3 so call, uh, system on chip off and putting it on their board. No. Are they reballing it? Um, I haven't seen the video. I just read the description. So <laughs> I assume they're reballing it, I'd hope. God, how much are they charging for this thing? I don't think you can buy it. Oh, okay. But the fact that someone actually built this and is using it means probably the Raspberry Pi Foundation should build something similar. Huh. Kind I mean, of like... basically like the, like the Pi Compute module, right? Yeah, except it's... Even Theoretically, it'd be cheaper than the Compute module, because I've used the Compute module as well. But the Compute module is like almost the same price as the full-on Raspberry Pi 3 with all the connectors and stuff. And then you have to add in that sodium connector, which is... Not a cheap connector. That thing's like six bucks. So. Plus all the pins, so it's like expensive to assemble. Look at that. The article was written by uh, James Lewis. Yeah, Mr. Capacitor Man. Yeah. That was a great episode. 
We talked about Kemet capacitors with James Lewis. Yeah, all I ceramic. enjoyed that one. All ceramic capacitors all the time. Wow, it's incredible that they're cramming all this crap down into... I mean, what's the size of this, what, 40 millimeters by 25 millimeters? So one inch by inch one and, and a half. half inch? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So I, it'd be interesting to see if Raspberry Pi comes out with a version like this for the 4. That's like just like a stripped-down version for you know embedding further into products. Or whether or not we'll get a compute module for the four. Well, that was there was that um, was it Next Company or they went out of business that was doing little modules like that. Yeah, uh, they it was Next Chip. Was it Next Chip or Chip? Just chip. oh, it was C-H-A-P, just Chip, right? Yeah. yeah, and they yeah. had the GR eight, the great <laughs> chip. <laughs> I actually have some in the drawer right here, <laughs> so. That's uh, like that company um, that sells a bunch of weird, like, audio-specific stuff. Uh, it's called VAT Corporation, and everything is like a VAT123 or whatever. Oh, yeah. We've talked about a couple of their chips before. We've used a couple. You've used a couple of their chips before. I, I deal with their chips every single day. They're super popular in my industry. But it's Those also chips? kind of like, really, guys, you could have, you could, that's the best you could think about for your name. The real <laughs> says those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, onwards with more Raspberry Pi stuff. The USB Type-C issue on the Raspberry Pi 4. Yeah, there's there's actually a really good, fairly, not fairly, pretty damn in-depth um, article on Hackaday about this uh, with the USB Type-C issue. So, you want to dive into what that actual issue is? So, what Raspberry Pi Corporation or Foundation, whatever, I think it's Foundation, uh, what, what they did... What the design is on the USB Type C connector uh, for the power, uh, the PD, the power distribution is the power distribution. Anyways, um, how that works on Type C is there's two pins called the CC pins, and they need to be pulled up or down, or you need to send data across them. It's like a low voltage data signal as well, um, basically telling what the host what the device is. Well, it helps them detect the orientation of the pins as well, because they form a voltage divider with, uh, I think, resistors that are in the cable, and it does a voltage sense. That's how it's able to flip it around. Correct. So it, those pins do a lot of multiple things, and what Raspberry Pi did is they connected both CC pins together at the connector, and then pulled that down to 5.1k uh, to ground, which with a dumb cable which is a cable that just has those resistors sense resistors in it it works fine for the power but the moment you use an e-rated cable which has a little microcontroller in it that's make basically tells the host and the device like hey this cable can do whatever power it can do it can do 100 watts or 60 watts or whatever Uh, but it also handles some of that pd communication and looking at the device well when you do that it creates this very interesting voltage divider scenario where it gets classified as an audio device and it won't send power down. Yeah, I think it, it drops into like the, the old default USB mode, which was 500 milliamps. Yeah. Which for a Pi, of course, is nowhere close to what they need. Exactly. What, what the, the 4 is, is upward, like the, uh, the power supplies are re, Two at 3 amp, right? Because like previously with the 3 and 3 plus, 
uh, I think they were shipping with a two amp, like as the the official standard. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's three amp for the wall. That screwed me up on a couple when I switched to the the Pi three. Didn't have a power enough powerful enough uh, plug for it. Oh, did you get the little lightning bolt symbol? Yeah, or it didn't even come on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So with the. I know we've talked about USB-C, but it's like it's still kind of confusing to me because there's just so many like there's so many ways that you, it has to be configured properly that it's kind of um, it's understandable that they would make a mistake. Uh, now, the uh, so with the the E cables, they they do a lot more than just say like we're capable. They also take care of like the handshaking, too. Right. Uh, not so much. Um, most of the handshaking is between the host and device over that. Is TV. it okay? Yeah, yeah. Because don't they have to say like, "Are you ready?" "Yes, I'm ready." "Let's go." "Okay," and then it starts hammering power. Yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll negotiate higher power, mm-hmm. but the the e marked cables they will you know they have to have higher gauge right, so they'll jump in and say, "Hey, I can handle even more power than what a standard USB cable can." Yeah. Got it. Yeah, so you're not melting your USB. <laughs> Yeah, so this issue cables. doesn't necessarily brick the Pi Four. It just means that in order to deliver that power, you have to have a you have to use a dumb cable. Correct. But they they are going to fix it in a later release. Yeah, that's a pretty big oops. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's one of those. It should have been tested. Yeah, we caught a similar issue with our USB Type C on the badge. Yep. Yeah. So we but we had a different issue. Um, it was that was the hardest hardware problem we had this year was USB C. Yeah, it's like why is this not working? So we found this really cool USB Type C connector, and I've talked about it a couple times on the podcast, where it only has like the pins you need for USB Type C to implement USB 2.0. So it doesn't have all the extra high, super high speed stuff. Um, so it's really cool for like doing a what we're doing on on the badge, which is just like you know we just had normal USB type 2.0 and we just want to use, you know, a flippable connector. Um, but the, wherever we found the footprint from, was it built in the keycad or is it something that we found online? It was the schematic that was built in. And there's actually two, there are two different USB-C receptacles in the standard KiCad library. And one had the same CC pin repeated so it's like, well, I've got one connected. They must both be, which is stupid. And then the other one actually broke them out as CC1 and CC2, and you should tie both of those to ground through a 5.1K resistor. Yeah. So, the, But, like, the, separately, two separate 5.1Ks, right? Not the same. Correct. So we had a our, our USB-C implementation. You, it was not reversible. You had to get, get it yeah. in the right way. So <laughs> it plugged in, but it wouldn't work. So you had to unplug it yeah. and flip back over. Yeah, so it's just normal USB. It takes. Yeah, you just made it normal. <laughs> yeah, but we we fixed that on on the production version, so it was groovy. Huh. So so the the Raspberry like I don't think we've heard if the um, when we're going to see a new version of the Pi Four, right? Probably whenever they run out of boards that they've made. I you know I haven't done a ton of research, but from what I've heard and watched some YouTube videos on, it seems like they're backordered already. You know for the Pi Four. Yeah. So seems like maybe this is the time that they can jump into that. It's also kind of, you know, the, the uh, maybe 
it's a little bit mean, but uh, the Hackaday article started off with like the Raspberry Pi Foundation is no, you know, stranger to problems on launch and stuff. And then they go into this whole list of like all the things that they've gotten wrong. And it's like, man, that's kind of rough. Yeah. <laughs> I would say one of those issues is like the photosensitive LDO. It was on the Raspberry Pi 2. Yeah, the, 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 the switching power controller. That yeah, was actually really that was a really cool issue. To where be basically, if you hit it with like a flash from a, a really bright light source, it would freak out the LDO and cause it to just a stall. You know, uh, Dave Jones has a really great video on that. It's actually you have to hit it from a, with a flash from a xenon bulb, okay? Because that has just the right frequency that it causes the photoelectric effect in an exposed dye, and it and it what it actually does is it causes the that chip to go into a uh like a current restriction mode because it thinks that it's overcurrent and so it just basically chokes off power to the processor and resets it so yeah it's like how why how are you this is going back to an episode when we were talking with chrissy and talking yeah. about like testing products is like the most important thing you could do it's like if you didn't have a, a flat a camera flash with a xenon bulb you would never even thought about that yeah, yeah. Well, and, and in that video with Dave, he, he takes pictures of the board with multiple different cameras, and it's only the xenon bulb that resets it. And it's like, what? That is like, a little weird. How does that happen? So there's a, there's a guy at DEF CON a couple years ago that was working on a Pi gun, and he, took, he had a camera flash hooked up to his makeshift gun, and then when he hit the, when he hit the trigger, it would actually do a flash and kill the Pi. People <laughs> 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 are wearing Raspberry Pis around their necks as badges, and it's like, boom, kill you. <laughs> You know, I wonder uh, with it with a gun, like a, I guess gun like that, how far away it would still be functional. You know, oh, I don't know. We, I think we need to test this. Yeah, sounds great. Maybe I he'll don't be think there the new Raspberry Pis are affected by it, though. No, no, no. I think they were. Uh, I think that was like a, a cute manufacturing trick where they were like, "Hey, we can use a flip chip on on this controller and save an extra penny here because we're still trying to hit our thirty five dollar mark." Which that's awesome, but it's also like, well, there's unfortunate impacts and it's exactly like you said Grafoam. like it's you're never gonna like how do you test for that like how do you even think about that you know yeah you don't like in the data sheet does it say like xenon bulbs firing at x range can cause this thing to fail you know i bet you i bet you the engineering department that designed that chip probably heard of that and they were like huh that's cool you know, because yeah. they probably don't do didn't that. even know. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> or put your device in an enclosure, and that won't happen. <laughs> yeah, that you're right. Exactly. I bet TI's data sheet has it. Frequency of light versus failures. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. They have a chart. So a and intensity. <laughs> yeah, a histogram yeah. of failures. <laughs> That's yeah. great. All right, cool. So the next RFO is Sony crowdfunded personal air conditioner. So me living in Houston, this is uh, something that piqued my interest. Um, so it's called the Rion Pocket Wearable AC and Heater Device. And so it's a little, it looks about the size of a phone that you put into a pocket. It comes with shirts. It goes into a pocket on the back of your, like, right between your shoulder blades. And it uses a peltier to heat and cool that area of your body and so you can get this nice cooling effect that radiates throughout your back 
And the how do I get one of these? So they're only in Japan right now through the first flight program, which is Sony's like pilot, like internal pilot program, and people can like you basically use it as like Kickstarter to like fund internal products at Sony. I really want to try one. Okay, so so get this. Uh, I I kind of love this, and one of the, one of the reasons why is um, I I worked one time one time because it sucked, but I worked as a uh, um, on a on a job doing some roofing in the middle of summer in Houston. If you've ever done that, like it's it's quite possibly one of the worst things you could possibly do to yourself. But the crew that I was working with, there was a couple of us. Um, I noticed they had a trick and it totally freaking worked. They, they had a block of, of steel or aluminum. I don't remember what it was. They would take this block, swear to God, they would, they would, uh, take a, uh, um, neckerchief and they'd soak it in water. They'd put the block on the back of their neck and then they'd just tie it to their neck and you'll stay cool. It, it's like a heat sink. And for some reason, the back of your neck there's uh it's there's a lot of heat that escapes there and uh and that'll keep you cool during the day you wear you wear a um a hat on top of that and it's it's game over so i'm gonna bet you this does work yeah so it's that version and it's for like if you look at the pictures it's for businessmen so they can look still look professional and not have a you know neckerchief with a piece of steel tied to their neck Right. Also, I, I bet you if you had some kind of like electric gizmo while you're out there roofing, you'd probably get made fun of, you know, when you could just use <laughs> like a soaked handkerchief. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice that their crowdfunding options include either five shirts, three shirts or one shirt? Yeah, that's the only Ooh. options. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's called the Rion. And I wonder because there's a couple. Oh, it's USB type C. I wonder if it, it is. is detected as an audio device. Um, and Bluetooth. Perfect. And, and IoT. I wonder if there's a way. <laughs> Using one of those like courier services that are in like China and Japan that you can like order one of these and then just have them ship it to you. Oh, the reshipping services. Yeah, we should definitely look into that for DefCon next year because it's going. It's only a week. DefCon's only a week away, so I don't think we can get these by then. You know, I'm I I don't I don't read uh, well. Okay, so it's saying that it goes zero degrees Celsius, which. Well, it's a heater, right? So, okay, so that makes heater sense. and cooler. Yeah, it does go up to forty-five degrees Celsius. Now, here's the thing: forty-five degrees Celsius is one hundred and thirteen Fahrenheit, and in Houston, it can get past one hundred and thirteen Fahrenheit. I mean, it doesn't get much past that, but yeah, you could take it right to the edge of its working temperature. So it is sold out, which is too bad. Yeah, I wonder if they'll pop up on eBay. Yeah, probably. They're only one hundred and fifty. If you are a listener in Japan. I will buy one from you if you manage to get I will one. Trade, I will I'll trade an Anonyx Ore badge for one. There, there we go. That's a good trade. That is a good trade. We we need to try this thing out because I am. This thing's like piquing my interest all week. I'm not sold on like you have to have the custom shirt thing. Like, that's a little goofy, but <laughs> yeah. What, what does it take to get like 50 of these all over my body? <laughs> <laughs> like just think of these things sewed together yeah like chain mail cooling i'm imagining like a bulletproof vest but instead of putting plates in you put these things in <laughs> uh, that's a great idea that's fantastic you know i bet you this is something the military has had for like 20 years you know oh yeah that's what they're doing at area 51 
Yeah, that's what everyone's storming to get. <laughs> Some of these oh, things. Yeah. I, well, I just and, like how... and, and a couple and not XOR badges, right? Those are at Area well, yeah. 51, yeah. too. Right. Yeah, we dropped a couple on the, on the other side of the fence. Well, you know those guys pretty well, right? Oh, totally. <laughs> they came up with our designs. Well, I'm talking about the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> but Because um, I, I can't speak Japanese either, Stephen. But my I like how like you scroll down and like the first English language is business person answers. And I'm gonna best this is like a FAQ, but like it's called business person. Yeah. <laughs> no lie, it act- it actually says that. <laughs> it's really geared to office workers and so no one knows you're wearing it though. Cause it, like they have pictures of like when you wear your shirt and jacket, there's no lump there of this device. But okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so a Peltier has to have uh, a temperature like differential across Correct. it to actually work. So if this thing is is underneath uh, an undershirt and a button up and a suit coat and things like that, it's just going to stop working. Right? Yeah, it depends on how breathable those fabrics are because it does have a fan and that's what's cooling off the hot side. Oh, okay. So it has forced air going across. It. Yeah, it has forced air. Oh, I see. It has a little like grill down at the bottom. It kind of looks like a weird microphone. A little bit, yeah. Probably why it doesn't work over 114. Probably. Yeah, probably. Because it just gives up, right? The physics stop working. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder physics. if I would have enough time. Is Because I have... Hold on, I'm going to step away from the mic. Wait, you're going to try to buy one before DEF CON. You have like a week and two days or something. Like that. He's going to make one. Oh, you... Oh, good. <laughs> He's just going to duct tape it around his neck (laughs) and walk around with a portable power supply. (laughs) You remember the uh, ABC, the automotive butt cooler. Oh, my gosh. I have not seen that in a long time. And a TEC or a Peltier device. And you just give it a shitload of power and it does its thing. Uh, That sounds like the American solution to it. Mounted on head and a bunch of lithium batteries. You're good to go. Yeah, there we go. I like that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. American ingenuity. Just throw a bunch of power at it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And steel. You need to make a steel enclosure for it. Yeah. So there was a side tangent. Um, There was a hard hat contest for DEF CON that I wanted to enter. And... We were doing the Anod Xor solder party, right? And so they told me about the contest. I'm like, oh, I got to totally do that. So I ordered a hard hat, and I ordered a cowboy hard hat. But then I read the rules later, and you can't enter with a hard, cowboy hard hat. Oh, really? You have to use a standard hard hat. Oh, womp womp. Yeah. So I got to figure out how to make this portable in, like, next three days. <laughs> <laughs> um, did I ever tell you about the coup pants? The uh, design for Koo Pants. Cool Pants? No, they were C-O-O Pants. Koo Pants cool is what pants. they what It's the like Cool Whip. Was. Yeah, like Cool Whip. Yeah, right. The uh, yeah, Cool Whip. Uh, I, I swear I've told this story, so I apologize if you've heard it before. I've never but, heard this story before. <laughs> no, no, get this. So I took a class in college once, and it was a design class, and it was the most blow-off class ever. Like, absolute blow-off. And... Uh, w- w- at the end of the semester, we all had to get up on stage in front of like 700 people and like give like design examples. And you had to have five separate designs um, for your team. And, and each team member would get up and talk about a design. And, and 
we knew it was a blow-off class, so like I, uh, we just all said, hey, everyone just come up with your own design, get up there and say it. And so we didn't tell each other what our designs were. And I got up there and I did my design and it was whatever, you know. And then this kid who was 18, he was fresh out of high school, and I'm a, I'm a senior at this time, he gets up right after me and he goes, coup pants, right in front of everyone. And then he brings up this diagram that he drew in like ms paint on this huge screen in front of like 700 people and he designed these pants that had tubes that went up them and they these tubes connected into your shoes and there was a bladder underneath the heel of your shoes so as you walked it would like spray cool air up your pants and keep you keep you cool as you as you walked and like this was legitimately like his senior does i mean well not senior, like the end of the semester design project and we're all just sitting there like holy shit this is what our team is doing you know that's actually creative um i give him props for that cool pants cool pants he, he even he even like made like this whole like graphic logo for it and everything if it keeps the msp aesthetic i'll buy a, buy a pair you know, I gotta admit, I I have used MS Paint in a like high level senior design um, class before uh, for a presentation on electron beam, like my car or whatever. I don't remember even what it was for. Uh, but like, I needed a diagram, and it was like the night before my presentation. So I was like, "All right, MS Paint, this is we're doing this." <laughs> <laughs> I got called out for it in the lecture. <laughs> All right, cool. Last RFO. Micro-sized flex for commercial quality bodging. So this is super cool. Yeah, this is a really neat technique. So uh, if you've ever gone into production with a board and made a mistake and had to bodge things, you know that it's awful and it really sucks, especially if it's your mistake and you kind of have to go to the people on the manufacturing floor and say, I'm sorry, let's find a way to fix this. And you end up running green wires or blue wires or whatever color you choose. It kind of sucks. Um, but this article on Hackaday kind of gives a really kind of cool solution around it that um, gives you a more professional look and almost makes it look like it was intended. Yeah, and it would definitely be faster to implement on the floor as an additional well, assembly step. Right. For sure. Yeah. So this is basically a flat flex cable that conforms to the wiring bodge that you would attempt to do by hand. So uh, on this bodge that they're looking or that they designed, they kind of have, I guess, exposed pads underneath and it's somewhat castellated but it's but it's an actual flat flex cable that kind of wraps around the board wherever the bodge needs to go to and then is hand soldered in place so it's a hell of a lot easier than trying to cut and strip wire and you know put nice curves and 90s and things like that which that's fine like if you're prototyping and you're in the engineering lab and you need to run three extra bodge wires like you can spend some time and make it look nice and like glue them down and things like that but in production it really sucks so um this is a really cool uh, concept of like, okay, so design the bodge on flat flex and then give that to manufacturing. And then they just have to solder more terminals down. Mm -hmm. um, I really like this when I saw it. Yeah, I think it's a really good idea. Um, maybe Raspberry Pi should use this. <laughs> Ooh, too soon. Damn. <laughs> rough. <laughs> so I, I can't tell. I'm looking at the picture in the article. Yeah. Did they, 
put this underneath the QFP part, or is this on top? It's on top. And so it's allowed to con connect all the traces and stuff together. So they're doing it to, like... On, in this example, they're using it to, like, bring out more the connections to that, like, those, like, six pads there. So you can solder... So you don't have to solder to the chip. Like, if you have, like, an... They're doing it for a mod for a uh, for a console. So they're bringing those pads that would you and be around the chip to a central location and a bigger area for you to solder to. Yeah, this is a this is a really great way to hack things. Also, if you know what pads you need and you know where you need to bring them to, this is this is a great way to um, you can. Like, take, for example, you solder this in place once, and then you never have to jack with the more sensitive pins of the processor. Mm -hmm. You can just mess with your flat flex, which you could design that to be as uh, big and robust as necessary. I like that. That's really Hold cool. Hold on. I'm, I'm writing something down right now for next year. <laughs> 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 hey, someone actually mentioned macrofab in the uh, comments of this article. Does, uh, does macrofab do flat flex on the regular now? Uh, you have to custom order it. Our platform doesn't support it yet. Huh. Hint, 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 hint. Sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure your the seams are not bursting with people wanting flat flex. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm still sure there's, very, there's plenty, but it's not a lot of people yet. But I'm hoping but not with a ton. Osh Park now doing it. And oh, I didn't know they were doing it. Now that's cool. Yeah, they're doing it now. I'm. I'm really hoping with that. It really spurs more the low-volume OEM people realizing they can actually afford this technology now going mm -hmm. forward. You know, um, have you ever... Can you get flat flex in any color other than Capton Brown? I don't think so. Because that would be really cool. If you offered a service where you could get, you know, black flex or something like that, that would be really That would cool. be pretty cool. So... Yeah, right if now, you use that idea, it's a thousand dollars. Thousand dollars. That's it. <laughs> okay, I'll send it to you from my yacht. So RFO <laughs> is over, but DefCon yeah. is next week. I can't. Believe, it's a it's a week from tomorrow. Yes, week from tomorrow. Uh, yeah, technically it starts on Thursday, but oh, okay. uh, people start showing up on Wednesday and lining up for LineCon. Yeah. So I. I'll, I was starting to look at like all the talks and stuff, and I was really excited about this backdooring hardware devices by injecting malicious payloads. Like I was starting to look at like hardware related talks to go to. So this is like hacking uh, microcontrollers by injecting I don't know how you know code and stuff into it. And maybe I can improve my own hardware devices do doing it uh, by taking that that course i guess not really course listen to that talk um but it's also at the same time of adventures in smart bug plug penetration testing <laughs> and i'm like god i want i want to go both those <laughs> adventures <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i know who's giving that talk and if it's and it's render man and if it's him he's he's a good speaker it's worth watching yeah so I, i'm thinking about actually because DefCon's pretty good about making sure stuff is available online later. Um, I might actually go see in person the adventures in smart bug plug testing, and then 
watch the injecting malicious payloads and microcontrollers online. Why do later. they need to be smart? I don't like, know why. But, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, that's fantastic. But like, there's a title. I'm like, oh man, I have to go. I have to go watch that. <laughs> okay, so before we started the podcast, Parker was off, or sorry, Crab Foam was off get, uh, getting a beer, and and Zap mentioned that that Parker was having trouble um, deciding what uh, what talk to go to. I didn't know that you were choosing between those two <laughs> options. <laughs> those were the two I was trying to decide to go to. There's a couple other ones, yeah, but um, man, in fact, most of them are like I can pick because there's like four different tracks or three different tracks, and I assume that just means different rooms they're in. There's there's three main tracks. Those are just the main talks, and then there's about thirty villages, and they all have talks. Okay. Yeah, it's gonna be busy. you're gonna be overwhelmed. And so yeah, uh, we're I, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Um, are you looking sort forward? Of as what, like what a talk first are you time looking forward to? to? Um, well, I was not aware of smart butt plugs, uh, so. <laughs> I may have to change my my itinerary now. <laughs> no, uh, honestly, I, when I looked through the list, uh, I I didn't understand ninety percent of the things that were on there. Uh, it was just like the title of the whole thing is like I didn't I don't I don't get any of the words that are in the title of this talk at all. There's uh, uh, but I did see the elevators. malicious payloads one. What wait which what was oh. it? Freaking elevators. Freaking elevators. That's by Will uh, Caruana. I can never say his last name right, but we'll see. Uh, he f- he's found ways where you can get the phone number in a elevator, uh, and then just call people while they're writing it up or down. He'll post them on Twitter. You know, just out of curiosity, like how how uh, like the uh, police force, how much is is out and about during this? Uh, FBI is definitely there. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, but they're looking for people doing real stuff, not just... Not just calling people in elevators. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're looking for fake cell phone towers, stuff like that. Uh, does that actually happen? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was talking I was talking to Crapham earlier uh, this week, and I was like, what do I need to be prepared for? Turn off your Wi-Fi and your Bluetooth and get a VPN. Not a free VPN because you get what you're paid for, but I can give you some recommendations offline. I... This this is a this is a new experience when you go VPN. to a conference. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's the one that you see always sponsored yes. on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like I like Nord. They're pretty good. There's there's websites depending on how much of your privacy you care about, where they're located, if they can, you know, if the U.S. government can can send them a warrant and get all your data. It just depends on what you're looking for. I mostly care about getting my data out of DefCon privately. Yeah, maybe I just won't bring my phone. That sounds that's, that's the safest route. Yeah, so we're going to wrap up this podcast. We're going a little long today. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your host guest, Zach Brannigan, and we were your host guests, Crab Foam and Blitz. Later, everyone. I can't read. <laughs> Take it easy. And thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. That was, that was great. Fun. I'm starving. Go eat. The MacFab Engineering Podcast Design Contest, sponsored by Mauser Electronics, is currently going on. The topic is useless machines. We have cash prizes up to $1,000 for winners. 
The deadline is August 10th and is closing fast. More information can be found at macfab.com slash blog.